0: Hey, y'all, you ever heard of an amazing young woman by the name of Zinzi Smith? Well, I have, and her and I had just an amazing conversation on Beyonce's Internet. I will have you know that 20 year old Zinzi Smith has her own black woman owned business for an entire year now teaching spin classes. And let me tell you, she's enthusiastic. She wants the world to know that she's ready to help you shed them pounds from Thanksgiving and Christmas and help you keep up with that New Year's resolution that all of us middle-aged people like to make while we're still making them. So I, for one, am going to try and take one of her classes, just $15 for an online class with Zinzi Smith. She also teaches in person in studios in Brooklyn and in Queens and NYC. And all around, I got to tell you, I am just in awe of her. So you can reach out to her on Spin With Zin. That's Spin With Z-I-N on TikTok and on Instagram. And let her know that you heard it here on Black Fluid Poets Podcast. And you're trying to shed them pounds and keep up that New Year's resolution. You feel me? So give her a shout out. Let me know how it went. you uh, so check it, check it, check it, check it out. I just came across a new clothing line that is amazing. It is Jupiter's Art. This is a clothing line for non-binary people, right? So the clothes are genderless and uh, they are also sustainable. Um, there's carbon offset and they don't add anything negative to the environment and they're also um, an ethical company with fair pay for their employees and they welcome uh, anyone in the spectrum of lgbt and race it is owned by people of color and they deserve your attention you can find jupiter's art on instagram on tiktok and you can search for them on google and find the website it is amazing check it check it check it out wait till you see this jacket oh my god it it is amazing y'all you gotta peep it jupiter's art check it hey y'all your fam black fluid poet check it out if you Love this podcast. I want to thank you for favoriting the podcast because it means the world to me. However, the way I can get more advertisers is to have more subscribers. If advertisers um, see that um, I have a lot of subscribers, they will be more willing to give me opportunities to advertise for them. So in order for me to get these ads, I need to get to a decent amount of subscribers so you come here to anchor.fm and you go to support and you can pick 99 cents, 499, or 999. Please feel free to pick 99 cents. I, I I am overjoyed at anyone who wants to support my dream of getting this podcast taking off. You know what I'm saying? So please just consider it. If I could get a thousand subscribers, I could get out of this poverty thing. You know what I'm saying? Cause yo. The struggle is real. Y'all take care. Hey, how's everybody doing? Black Fluid Poet, a.k.a. John S. Blake. And, uh, well, I got some really amazing reviews about this first podcast, which put me at ease because I was un- Fathomably nervous. I was so nervous about how everyone was going to react to it. Uh, I didn't know if I talked long enough. I didn't know if I talked too long. <sighs> it, it's just such a relief to have so much support from so many people. Um, I also want to let you guys know I started my Patreon. patreoncom slash poet. Right now, I posted a couple of poems, but um, I'll be writing uh, free write journals there um, with no editing except for maybe some spelling errors, but just whatever comes to mind, it's what I'm going to write about. Tonight, I want to talk about women. Um, I want to talk about my experiences, what I've learned. And how much that has changed in 50 years, you know. I've been on this earth 50 years, you know. And I can remember the way things were in the 70s, then 80s, 90s, early 2000s, 2010s, here we are, right. Um, I'm going to remember a lot of that through my mother, through my mother's life. And in talking about that, I'm going to talk about, at least I, I would like to talk about how did I gather information about masculinity living in a matriarchal home with no dad, um, very little influence from my brothers, um, with a woman ruling the house with an iron fist, mind you? (sighs) You know, my mother was just a remarkable human being. That's the only... She had been through so much in her life that I couldn't really, I couldn't even create the scenario of the experiences my mother shared with me until I was well into my 30s. Things that she told me when I was a teenager. My mother had gotten to a point, well, here, let me say this. My mother always believed when I was old enough to ask the question, it must have been time to be given the answer. So I asked, you know, really strange questions. Now being, even though I'm the youngest of a lot of siblings, um, I was basically an only child because I came so late. Uh, My mother gave birth to me when she was almost 40 years old. So all my siblings were at least 10 years older than me. So by the time I hit my, you know, childhood on the playground years, my siblings were teenagers. Most of them had moved out of the house already. So I spent a lot of time simply around my mom, who was an adult, and any of her adult friends that would come by the house. So even though... I wasn't necessarily involved in the conversation. I heard a lot of things. And then when her friends would leave, I would ask questions. And whenever I asked the question, my mother would just give me the answer. And some of those questions I think could have been postponed, (laughs) you know, um, being five and six years old and and wondering why my mother's friend had uh, a part of her sentence in her belly And I didn't understand that. My mother was like, what, John, what the fuck are you talking about? And I was like, well, how come she says her stomach hurts from a period that belongs on paper? (laughs) So here's my mother trying to to explain to me, you know, the birth cycle and menstruation. And I was like, wait, so women just walk around bleeding all the time? (laughs) I just, you know, I had... You know, images of horror movies in my head and stuff. And it, there were just some things that could have waited, but my mother really tried. And I think my mother knew right away that I was a soft, gentle kid. You know what I mean? I wasn't necessarily displaying an overwhelming amount of femininity, but my mother understood that I was peaceful. She understood I was nonviolent. And I think it was more like she didn't understand it. She just kind of surrendered to it. You know, I would come home out of breath running from bullies. And it used to piss my mother off all the time. We lived on the Lower East Side of Manhattan in the projects. And my mother would get so angry at the fact that I just would not fight back. I never fought back. Never, never, ever fought back. As a matter of fact, here's a fun fact about me. I am 50 years old. And never in my life have I punched another human being. Now, I think a lot of that comes from size privilege. I think it's from being, you know, almost six foot five, about 240 pounds. Um, So I don't necessarily get confronted a lot. But even the times I've been confronted, I just, I don't react with violence. I don't even react with anger. I think what happens in my head is, My top priority is to make it stop. And I think that was my job throughout my whole childhood because my mom was a ball of rage. My mom was this Irish, English, German, white woman who stood 5'10", who averaged in her life around 360 pounds. And she had cinder blocks for hands. And I felt feared her i did not respect my mother i was afraid of my mother um the times when she was in a mellow mood were like holidays in my house because i just remember i was in constant alertness like hyper alert uh making sure that every move my mother made wasn't too fast you know if my mother jumped up off the couch somebody was was about to get beaten um and so for me my job even as a kid was always to try and calm my mother down was always trying to keep my mother calm um I remember a therapist telling me when I was around 17 that I was parenting my parent you know I was constantly trying to help her navigate her emotions so Naturally, I became this uh, people pleaser, um, a charmer, um, making sure to say the right things at the right times. And in doing that, I became a liar because I didn't say the right things because it was necessarily pleasurable. Pleasurable. I said the right things to avoid displeasure. I said the right things to avoid violence, to avoid beatings, to avoid hearing my mother scream. So I've spent the better part of my life on earth, this half century, avoiding conflict, doing everything I can to keep everyone at ease. And often in my life, I had to say, I love you too, in order for my relationships with many partners to stay mm, smooth, to stay more than functional, but just to see them smile. You know, if someone said I loved you and I didn't feel it, I would kind of coach myself into, well, I mean, you're here, you're going to feel it eventually. What's the difference if you say it now or if you say it in three months? I love you too. And then they would light up. And so in my head, it made perfect sense. Like, why not just say I love you? Yeah, I love you too. And I used to get frustrated when I had a partner that would be like, no, but do you really love me? I'm like, what the fuck does that mean? Because I couldn't understand waiting until you felt something. I couldn't understand, you know, um, being at the counter in the store and, and wanting to return something and getting flack for it. I couldn't understand why you would go, look, I want to speak to somebody who can change this. These don't fit. It's not the price it was supposed to be. X, Y, Z, whatever. And fix it. It's like, look, it was $20. fucking dollars. Like, throw the fucking jeans out, buy the ones you want, and it's solved. Like, why... Why make this scene? Why all this anger? My whole life I've been that way. And in doing that, I shut down my emotions and all the world became a stage. My whole life. I'm going to back up and talk about my mom. So my mom grew up in Midland Beach, Staten Island which sounds a lot more like Midland Beach, Staten Island. And my mother lived in an extremely white area. She was born in the late 1930s. And I guess she met a boy when she was about 13. And uh, she was sexually assaulted. It was her one and only sexual or romantic experience with a white male of any sort. And my mother came home, didn't say anything. Now her mother, her father, he was an Irish drunk who was in the Navy. Um, if you know the late 1930s, you know that World War II was about to start. And uh, he was constantly at the, the Irish gin mill, you know, out there in Midland Beach. And I think that my mother looking the most like him, my mother paid for her father's mistakes. You know, my mother's mother used to beat her. My mom had these bruises. I remember one night we were We were drinking. I was probably, I want to say 14, maybe 13. And my mom let me have a beer. And we were sitting in the kitchen. I didn't say my mother was the most functional person. I think that's how we started this conversation. So my mother was drunk. And um, she was drinking her rum, which she used to drink in a large Tupperware container. (laughs) With an entire tray of ice that went into the container and she'd fill it up with rum. And that was my mother's drink. Sometimes she'd add orange juice if we had it. But we're sitting there and my mom's drinking and she had on her nightie. And I noticed on her legs that she had these strange scars and discolorings. And the discolorings had been there her whole life. I had noticed them even in my early childhood. And I never asked, you know? So I said to her this one night, because it was probably the third beer I had ever had in my life. And halfway through this bottle of beer, I had some brew coverage. So I said, mom, you know, what's, what's all that on your legs? And she said, well, they're two different things. And I'm going to share these stories with you. One, she had these divots by her hip bones. And she lifted her 90 and she showed them to me. And she said, um, back in the late 1930s, early 1940s, they had coal stoves and used to shovel the coal into the stove. And then on the top, they had these uh, metal lids where the burn, where the, that would get hot and you could pull the metal lid off and wash it, you know, and put it back on. And the lid weighed probably anywhere between like two and four pounds My mother said, every time I came home, my mother hated me. And she'd always demand to know where I was. She'd call me a whore. And even though I didn't do anything wrong, my mother would just go grab that lid off the cold stove. And she would beat me with it. For no reason. And I remember looking at my mother like, really? Like, no reason. Because my mother was of the philosophy, if you see a woman whooping her child in the supermarket, that child did something to deserve said ass whooping. So, you know. So she said, yeah, no, John, my... She said, I know I hit you. But when I hit you, you got it coming. Now, of course, I have my own perspective on that, but I wasn't about to argue with my mother. So she said, but my mother would beat me every chance she got. And to this day, I'll never understand why. So I said, so what are these other scars? And she had these like little, little lines. They look like like cuts, but they were like deep. They were like uh, almost in like a mountain, like the, the cracks in a mountain. And I said, what is all of that? And she said, oh, they're, they're on both my inner thighs. And I said, what are they from? And she said, barnacles. And I said, barnacles? What the hell are those? And, you know, she told me about barnacles clinging to the bottoms of, of wooden boats and, you know, posts, you know, at in the ocean, you know, on the pier. they Barnacles would attach themselves to the posts. And I said, so <clears throat> how did you get those? So this is when my mother tells me the story of her being pregnant with me. So my father was black my father was um self-employed in the urban district one could say in distribution um he was in the pleasure business he was in the addiction business and um my mother met him in some nightclub someplace some after hours joint and they eventually got together, eventually got married. But um, one night, living in the same apartment that, that I was living in at the time, my, um, I wasn't living there at the time. I was a lot younger when we left. But the projects where I grew up, in that same apartment, my father would come home, sometimes with thousands of dollars, in the 1970s, which was a lot of money. And sometimes he'd come home with nothing. And one night, he came home with some money. And my mother, six months pregnant with me, starts giving my father shit because he'd be out on the streets all night doing his business, running numbers, dealing heroin, stuff like that. And, you know, he was also running women, sex trafficking, stuff like that. So my mother said, you know, it's been a while since you took me the fuck out. It's time that we go out. And my father was really reluctant because, again, this was 1969. And my father was deathly, though he loved my mother, he was deathly afraid of being seen in public with my mother, especially in restaurants. And my mother did not give a fuck. She just didn't care. So my father caves, and in January of nineteen seventy my father caves and takes my mother out to eat. And they go to some restaurant in Little Italy. And upon entering the restaurant at first, uh, the guy at the door tells them, you know, we ain't got no tables. And my father was like, okay, thank you very much. And when he goes to walk away, my mother goes, "Uh, there's a table right there. What's the problem? And my mother was one of those women, you know, where we didn't talk about privilege back then. My mother did not understand that her standing up for herself was dangerous, you know, um, as far as my mother was concerned, you know, she didn't give a damn if somebody was racist, there's an open table, she wants to sit down and eat, and after some back and forth, you know, it be, my mother being as loud as she was and demanding as she was, you know, um, Rather than create a scene, they gave my parents the table. My father's apologizing and my mother's looking at my father like, you know, why are you so spineless? And they get the table. They eat. Now, they have an appetizer. They have dinner. And there are people in the restaurant making comments guys sitting at the bar she told me who said something to the effect of hey tell that fucking couple that there's no fried chicken in here and my mother you know would turn around and my father would be like hey you know Kay, hey, don't 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 make a scene she was like fuck them and she turned around look here you guinea motherfuckers so forth so on you know I don't know who the fuck you think you're talking to and uh you know my father's trying to get out alive. He's thinking about his pregnant wife. He's thinking about, you know, he is just one man and this place is filled with people who don't want them there. So anyway, when they're done eating dinner, the guy is bringing them the check and my mother said, we haven't had dessert yet. And I, I I, picture in my head, you know, I wasn't there, but I can picture in my head, my father just putting both his elbows on the table and cradling his forehead in his fingers, just like, fuck, like, we're going to die. Like, we're going to die because this motherfucker don't know when to shut up. Like, I, I just know that that's what was going through his head because I know that's probably what I would feel, you know, um... So they have dessert, they get the check, my father leaves to get the car. So my father goes outside to get the car because he doesn't want his pregnant wife walking on the icy streets in January. My mother, seated, seated at this table, gets up, pulls her fur coat that she had up over her shoulders, turns around, gives the entire bar the middle finger. And leaves, saunters out the restaurant. And my mother tells me this story, sitting at this kitchen table with the ice, you know, knocking back and forth against the the Tupperware. And she's like, and I took my sweet fucking time walking out of that motherfucker, John. I took my sweet ass time and didn't give a fuck. And, you know, I've spent up until that point, here I am, 13, 14, and I've spent my entire existence avoiding conflict, keeping people calm. And my mother seemingly spent her entire existence causing conflict, you know, creating problems. I mean, that's what it looked like to me. So my mother gets outside, my father pulls up with the car, they get in, they leave. Now, my mother tells me that they laughed, listening to jazz music in the car, they laughed the whole way back to the apartment. But I imagine in my head that that probably sounded better than the truth. Because I imagine my father going, what the fuck is wrong with you? Like, why can't you just close your mouth, eat the fucking dinner, and we can leave? I ain't even want to go to that part of town anyway. That was for you. You know, I can imagine that because that's That's the way my dad was, you know. And my mother telling him to grow a backbone and why couldn't he stand up for her? And he's like, I want us alive, you know. So anyway, they're driving and it's not that far. You know, uh, we were living on the Lower East Side by the East River. They were in Little Italy. And so, you know, it's maybe a couple of miles. And they somehow get to the FDR Drive on the East River And my mother, the way my mother tells it, a car pulled up right behind them. Another car passed them and pulled up in front of them and slammed on the brakes. So my father hits the brakes and stops the car. They veer into like the guardrail, I guess, and into like some snow. And next thing you know, These three cars are all on the side of the road. And it's the men from the Italian restaurant getting out of the car in front and the car behind. My mom said, I don't know what they had in their hands, but they were breaking all the windows. They pulled your father out of the car. And I thought they beat him to death. And the next thing I know, somebody pulled me out of the car by my hair. They snatched my fur coat off of me. They threw it. And I watched, I watched my mother's face just harden, you know, like she had a way of dissociating from the emotional experience that had to have been a coping mechanism. But it was like the the more visceral the description of pain had gotten the calmer she became. She she told the story so matter-of-factly that I wasn't sure how to react, you know? And of course, I'm always concentrating on not upsetting my mother, right? So I watched my mother tell the story and she's no longer even looking at me. So it's almost like she was watching a movie screen and describing the scene to me. She said, John, I don't know how many men were hitting me. It was dark. But I was getting hit everywhere. They dragged me. I remember they dragged me through the snow. Next thing I know, I'm at the rail of the East River, overlooking the East River, overlooking Brooklyn. And I just remember one guy saying, So you like fucking niggas, huh? And I looked at my mother, and it looked like she almost cried. And she looked at me and said, so I said exactly what I needed to say. And I said, what's that? She said, fuck you. And she laughed. And then she said, and then they threw me over the railing into the East River. Where I held on to one of the wooden posts underneath the pier. And that's how I got these scars from the barnacles, from wrapping my legs around the wooden post. And, you know, I didn't, I couldn't take in all the context at that age, right? So it wasn't until decades later that I thought about the fact that, hold up, she was six months pregnant with me. It was January in New York City. Must have been freezing. And I said to her, you know, so what happened? She said, well, from what your father said, the cops found him on the side of the road, all by himself in the busted up car. They thought he was a junk driver because, you know, he had some wine at dinner. And they were about to arrest him. And when he tried to say that these white dudes, these fucking Guinea bastards, the way my mother puts it, They, you know, they beat him within an inch of his life. And his face is all swollen. He can barely talk. He's delirious. He's dizzy. The cops didn't give a damn. They didn't believe him. They they were going to arrest him. She said, evidently, a young white couple that was on the East River walking ran up to the cop car and told them, Hey, there's a woman in the river and your father said that's my wife that's my wife they threw her in the river and the cops told him to shut up and then your father said to the cops she's white and she, from what he says from what he said everything changed after that and that's how people came and got me out of the river i was holding on i don't even know how long i just i kept counting Kept counting seconds and just trying to stay calm. All I could think about was making sure that you were born. When my mother was 13 and she was sexually assaulted and pregnant, eventually she started showing she had to tell her mother. And her mother threw her out. 13 years old, Midland Beach, Staten Island. Her mother was not about to have a pregnant teenager in her house that's not married. So my mother was thrown out of the house with the clothes on her back, got on the Staten Island ferry, and ended up in Manhattan. She just walked. From what she told me, she just walked. Walked all the time. Until she found herself in Harlem. She walked into her hair salon and lied that she knew how to cut hair and stuff, you know. And the way my mother says it, she goes, that bitch didn't believe me no kind of way. She just saw my pathetic young teenage ass with this big old belly. And she put me up in there and I was sleeping up above the salon and she let me sweep the floors and stuff. And that's how I met, um, that's how I met your brother's father. Now, what she's talking about is Benny, my oldest brother, who was the product of this sexual assault. And that's how my mother's life started. 13, surviving a sexual assault she was never allowed to talk about, thrown out of her house, forced to find her way in New York City with just the clothes on her back. When she found herself in Harlem and found herself loved and cared for, It was then that my mother, whether subconsciously or consciously, my mother decided nonetheless that she was no longer white. And she'll tell you that, she would have told you that. John, it was that day I knew I was no longer a white girl. And, you know, if she tried some stuff like that now, you know, that wouldn't go over too well. (laughs) They'd be like, look here, Rachel. (laughs) But back then, you know, she was welcomed, you know, with open arms. You know, her problems became their problems and vice versa. So, that's how my mother's life started. And so there I was, 13, 14 years old, sitting across from this woman. And watching her guzzle down an entire bottle of rum and still carrying a conversation. (sighs) For the first time in my life, I truly admired her. Not necessarily respected, maybe I did respect her, but I really didn't understand the concept back then. But I understood my mother and I saw her in a different light. And for a moment, it made sense why she was so... Fucking angry. I mean she she hadn't caught a break her whole life. And here she was, working this live in job, coming home only on weekends, so she could keep me in a white neighborhood because she wanted me to go to one of the best schools. And I hated that neighborhood. Oh my mother didn't care, and I hated the school, and my mother didn't give a damn. My mother just said, John, you are going to graduate from high school. You are going to college. If it fucking kills me, you are going to graduate from high school. You are going to college. I was going to be the first person in our family with a high school diploma. And my mother didn't give a damn who she had to kill, who she had to rob, who she had to lie to. But she was going to get me through my education. Even if she had to beat me through my education, that's exactly what was going to happen. You know, she took her frustrations out on my older siblings more than on me. They went through hell. I don't think my mother understood... Her trauma, nobody did back then, you know. We didn't even start talking about trauma until we started talking about, you know, soldiers coming home from war and the PTSD they were going through. But we hadn't talked about, you know, civilians going through trauma in their homes, through their childhoods, you know, surviving all kinds of assaults. So my mother had to navigate, and, and I try to imagine that, you know. I try to imagine being... My mother, at this age, at 50, never once seeing a therapist in her entire life. Sexually assaulted, abandoned by her parents, married off at 14 to my oldest brother's father, who was in his 30s, having babies, making dinner for a husband, you know, and then just eventually getting to this place where, you know, she had eventually met my dad and looked at him and was like, stand fucking up for me, man. You know, I don't give a damn what the danger is. Stand up for me. and My mother would get so angry at me for being the same way. You know, my my dad was no punk, you know what I mean? He, he'd he fight, but he wasn't about to fight in a whole restaurant full of dudes, you know what I mean? I remember my mother gave me $5 in food stamps. Some of y'all don't remember what food stamps are. You're going to have to Google that. My mother gave me $5 in food stamps and told me, John, I want you to go to the store. I think I was about six. John, I want you to go to the store. Go get some milk and bread. I said, okay. And I left normally. I mean, you know, it was a different time, y'all. So like here I was at five years old. And I'd say the supermarket was probably a good eight blocks away. And uh, in New York City. And I walked to the store. And on my way to the store, two kids saw me. Picked on me. Hit me a couple times. I fell. I cried. They took the $5 in food stamps and left. So I had to go home. And I did what any kid would do. I'd go home, you know, seeking solace and comfort and warmth. And I told my mother, they beat me up and they they took the food stamps. And my mother said, oh, okay. And she went in the kitchen. And I said, mom, are you mad? She said, no, I'm not mad. And she unscrewed the broomstick from the broom. And I looked at her. And she took the broomstick and she walked over to her purse She pulled out another $5 in food stamps and she handed me the $5 in food stamps. And I said, you want me to go back to the store? She said, yeah, but hold on one second. And picked up the broomstick and began to whack me with this broomstick in the living room. And I screamed. And she said, did the bullies beat you up like this? And I said, no. She said, that's right. Exactly. John, take this broomstick You take that $5 in food stamps, you go get me milk and bread. And John and I, you know, "Uh, yes, mom, she said, if you don't come back here with milk, bread, and my change, don't come home. Now, did she mean it? No, probably not. But even now at 50 years old, I say, probably not. You know? You know, the look on her face, the redness that came into her cheeks, the the, the grit sound of her, with her clenched teeth, don't come home, you know. And I saw the veins in her face and her hands shaking. She was so frustrated. And I think my mom knew there was no way I was going to make it in the projects that soft. And so she forced me to face this fear of violence. And I left the house with that broomstick. And I walked all the way to the supermarket. I took that broomstick into the supermarket. And I got milk and I got bread and I came back to the house with the broomstick. And even at six years old, I knew when it was time to lie. And I came back to the house and I said, here, mom. She said, you got my change? I said, yes, in the bag. And she said, what happened? I said, well, they came to rob me. But I swung the stick and they got scared and ran off. And my mother laughed and she gave me a hug. And she gave me a kiss and she said, I love you. And I said, I love you too. It always worked. I love you too always worked.